those who are paying attention is a really critical hedge. None <laughs> of the parties have even half of Canadians being able to say they've read, seen, or heard anything about them in the past week. But right. it's, it's a summer campaign, right? Sure, it's a deliberate plan by the Liberals, right? So the Liberals yeah. started ahead and they've, they've, uh, they've dropped the writ at a time where they're hoping that there'll be little opportunity for change. Right. It does seem like there's been a backlash. This is Flux Capacitor, a podcast about the future of electricity. I'm Francis Bradley of the Canadian Electricity Association. This is episode 044, number 44 of the Flux Capacitor. We feature discussions about the future of the business of electricity on this podcast and what the future transformations will mean for electricity companies, regulators, society, and customers. Once again, this podcast was not recorded face-to-face, but using Zoom. With Canadians headed to the polls on September 20th, this episode is a deep dive into the election, but through an electricity lens. I'm joined by Greg Lyle, the founder and president of Innovative Research Group. Greg and I discuss the drivers in the election campaign relevant to the electricity sector, namely the environment, affordability and jobs, the evolving views on climate change, and how campaigns and the media set priorities. Greg also shares what he sees as customer priorities for electricity companies. And, as with previous podcasts, we wrap up the conversation with some book recommendations. Books a pollster would recommend during a Canadian election campaign. Here is my conversation with Greg, recorded late August 2021. So, Greg, welcome to the podcast. I'm glad you were able to join us. I'm looking forward to it. Particularly now, uh, here we are in, in the middle of an election campaign. But, but before we get to that, maybe for the listener that, that may not know uh, Innovative Research, maybe just a, a quick description of, uh, of your company. Sure. Um, uh, we got going in 2004. And actually, one of our first big projects was the first online election study done for a media outlet. We did the 2005-2006 election for McLean's magazine. Right. Um, But most of our work is focused in the regulated space. Mm -hmm. Um, In uh, utilities, we mostly work for the utilities, although we do work for some, um, occasionally for some regulators, uh, both safety and economic. And um, uh, we also work for regulators like the securities commissions are a good example of the sort of thing we do. Uh, we work in toll roads, which is also a heavily regulated sector, both here and in the U.S. Um, and we do a fair amount of uh, linear infrastructure, right. um, roads, pipelines, power lines, those sorts of things. Which is where you and I first met. I don't know, what, 15, 15 years ago, you were yeah. doing some work uh, first for uh, BC Transmission Corporation, which which got reintegrated back into BC Hydro. And uh, full disclosure, you've been doing work for, for CEA since then as well. Yes, very much so. So, so here we are. It's uh, week two of a, an election campaign, uh, and I'm I'm fortunate to have a pollster on the podcast. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit. You know, I, I would be remiss if I didn't start by picking your brain a little bit about the uh, the election itself. I know most people, you know, they want to know, hey, how's the horse race going? But that changes day to day. Uh, and so, you know, I'm, I, I mean, uh, by the time uh, this gets edited and goes up online, all of that will change. But but what won't change, I don't think, will be the salience or lack thereof about, you know, some of the some of the issues that uh, we're concerned about and, and that the, the, uh, the listener to this podcast would be concerned about. Um, so what issues should, should people in the energy sector uh, be watching uh, as now politicians are out on the, the hustings? It still feels like it's summer, but I know, you know once we get past Labor Day, uh, the campaign really will be uh, launched. But what are the sorts of things people in the energy space should be looking for? Well, the energy space plays out in at least three different ways when you look at what's going on in terms of the election. Um, One way in which it plays out is uh, environment. 
Um, and so the, the role of electrification as part of the solution to climate change, right. um, there's a lot of interest in that. Um, the second way it plays out is affordability. Um, and so one of the challenges is that, for instance, if you think about home heating, uh, it's more expensive to use electricity than natural gas and home heating. Mm -hmm. And um, you see affordability being a major interest across the country. Um, the sort of flagship issue in affordability is housing affordability. Right. Uh, but the cost of living generally is something that is of a lot of interest. And then the, the third way it plays out is in terms of jobs. Mm -hmm. And so um, even though individuals have been cushioned by an unprecedented degree of government support uh, to avoid the impacts of COVID, right. uh, the reality is we're 250,000 jobs lower than where we started. And mm -hmm. given the growth of population from immigration and all the rest of that, some economists argue that we're half a million jobs below uh, where we ought to be, which seems odd because we know that there are organizations like restaurants that are struggling to find staff. Right. But that's probably more about the type of job and the fact that we still have some of the COVID funding in place. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you're at the um, near the minimum wage, um, there's a, you know, the trade-off between uh, sitting at the beach with uh, 300 bucks a week from the government or, you know, going to work and getting another couple hundred more, some people have the luxury of saying, I'll sit on the beach. Mm -hmm. uh, so we won't fully see that until after the election. Then we'll have a, a better understanding of where that happens. But electricity jobs are good jobs. Right. They pay a lot more than minimum wage. And, um, you know, they're the sort of jobs that people would want to see. And then there's the jobs that electricity literally powers. Mm -hmm. um, and then that, of course, can brings us back to affordability and also brings us back to electrification, right? Because right. Um, if you're trying to uh, green the oil and gas sector, um, replacing some of the fossil fuel inputs into that process with uh, green electricity inputs, uh, helps position that sector better, as one example. Mm -hmm. You know, I was having a conversation uh, with a colleague uh, earlier today, actually, and we were talking about the election. And, and uh, one of the comments that I'd made is, after talking so much about net zero 2050 and, and what a big lift it's going to be for society as a whole, what it's going to mean for electricity as, as, as well, um, and it strikes me that that's not something that's being talked about uh, much at all, at least so far in the campaign. Is is net zero 2050 just something that's that's like too much inside baseball that only uh, you know us policy wonks talk about? Because it doesn't seem to be something that's being discussed on the campaign trail. Uh, you know, it'll get thrown in from time to time as an indication of vision, right. but we we um, we've asked people, you know. How familiar are you with the idea of, of electricity or electrification or energy transition? Yeah. And, you know, what we find is that a lot of people just aren't really clear what that term means. It sounds like a good thing, but they can't explain it to their friends. Right. Um, and the truth is there's going to be there's room for um, a lot of, uh, you know, there's that old phrase of, of plenty of slip between cup and lip and you know the goal of 2050 net zero is is great but the challenge of getting there and particularly the affordability challenge is really big so for instance we've asked people what do you think about climate change what do you think about the government's carbon tax policies and all those numbers look really good i mean we did this in the first week of august mm -hmm. and so we've seen uh, more concern about uh, climate change in august than we'd ever seen before um, and, and people say that they're willing to uh, sacrifice, they're willing to pay more, lose jobs to deal with it. Right. But then when we say, okay, here's two points of view, uh, a carbon tax is a great way to lead Canada's fight against climate change versus a carbon tax is essentially an empty gesture that doesn't do much for the environment and, and costs us jobs and, and uh, money out of our pockets. Mm -hmm. um, 38% agree with the statement that the carbon tax is just an empty gesture oh. or 44% that say it's it's a great way to lead. 
So the political dynamic, even though there's all these questions you can ask that look really, really rosy Mm -hmm. for um, fighting climate change and carbon taxes and those sorts of things, when push comes to shove, because of things like, it's a a true statement that as part of the international uh, climate change agreements, Mm -hmm. um, countries like China and India can continue to uh, build new new coal plants and are at a rapid pace. And so, um, and lots of other countries don't have carbon taxes. Mm-hmm. Border adjustments aren't fully worked out yet. Mm-hmm. And so there's, you know, there, if, if people really want to see electrification and carbon tax, they, sh- they, or, you know, carbon tax as a tool, they shouldn't assume that just because the government has set these policy objectives and embraced these goals, that they're actually going to be able to meet them. And you know, the, the ugly truth of Canada's record on this is that no government so far has delivered on any of their promises in terms of climate, uh, of carbon uh, reduction plans. Right, ever, yeah, yeah. Yeah, is that, is that something that, uh, that is, is uh, understood or recognized? Do, do people realize that as a country we keep making these commitments that we never deliver on? Well, on the left, it's a real vulnerability for the liberals. Yeah. Right. So if we look at the progressive vote, which tends to be a younger vote, tends to be a more urban vote. Okay. Um, one of the things that we asked people uh, before the election started in an agree-disagree statement is, you know, the liberals and conservatives uh, may have their differences, but when it comes to the real changes country needs, neither one of them is going to make a difference. Mm-hmm. And over a third of Canadians agree with that statement. That really, when it comes to the big picture, the differences aren't important, that basically neither of them is going to do what we need. And that creates a huge opportunity for the Greens and the NDP. Right. The Greens, with their internal uh, civil war, Mm -hmm. have have basically taken them off the stage. Insofar as people are hearing anything about the Greens is that the Greens don't like the Greens. Um, And that's really impeding their ability to get any momentum in this campaign. But on on the same side, when you look at, at how people are reacting to Jagmeet Singh and the NDP, he's been impressive for those that are paying attention. Hmm. Right? The, the, and I, I just want to talk about that just for a quick second. But the, those who are paying attention is a really critical hedge. Okay, right. <laughs> None of the parties have even half of Canadians being able to say they've read, seen, or heard anything about them in the past week. Okay, yeah. Right? And now is that a function like of Monday? As of Monday. But right. it's, it's a summer campaign, right? Sure, it's a deliberate plan by the Liberals, right? So the Liberals yeah. started ahead and they've, they've, uh, they've dropped the writ at a time where they're hoping that there'll be little opportunity for change. Right. It does seem like there's been a backlash to that call and that suppressed their vote somewhat. Um, but they've got a lot of fundamentals in their way or in their favor. They have a lot more uh, brand affinity. They have a lot more brand loyalty. Um, the agenda that people are looking for in terms of economic transition Mm -hmm. is a kinder, gentler Canada, which works very well for the Liberals. Uh, They don't want a full-scale New Green Deal. They don't want to completely upset the apple cart in terms of the economy, but they want to do more to help the people that are struggling. They want to be greener, all the rest of that. And so that sort of incremental improvement that the Liberal um, throne speech and budget was all about mm-hmm. is very much in keeping with the mood of the room. And you can see that. I mean, that what's been interesting about the Conservatives at the start of this campaign is that, well, they're they're promising to balance the, the books in 10 years. Yeah. Um, in the short run, they're planning to spend quite a bit of money. And um, yeah. that may upset some rock rib Tories, but the, it's a smart read of the room. Smart read of the room. Uh, I, I, I'm assuming that the campaigns are doing focus groups, they're doing polling, they're testing messaging. Uh, that's that's all part of the game, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. They don't always listen. Right. right? And so yeah. Sometimes they go in there like anyone else with confirmatory bias, looking to hear what they want to hear and ignoring the stuff they don't like. Oh, you've never uh, seen that from clients? No. No, never, never. <laughs> so the... Um, so when I when you look at what's going on with O'Toole in particular, uh-huh. um, I this is not um, not a typical campaign that you would expect from conservatives. 
Hey, uh, I, I want to circle back to that in a, in a minute, but I, I just want to pause. Uh, and one of the questions that I ask everybody that comes onto the podcast is about their journey. And I know a little bit about your journey, but I, I think I think the uh, the listener would be interested. Um, you know, how does how does how does one uh, become uh, the, the the head of and founder of a, a public opinion research company when you were a kid on the playground? Um, was this what you dreamed of doing? Sort of what was your journey from there to here? I had no idea. I started off at university intending to be a geophysicist. A geophysicist. Okay. Yeah, that, that was the plan. Um, I really wanted to be an astronomer, but it was the recession and it seemed like a bad career move. So I ah. thought geophysics, I can learn the stuff I want to learn, but have a paying job at the end. And um, and I just stumbled into politics at Clubs Day one day. Uh-huh. Uh, took a, I had some room at, for... Um, some electives, took some political science courses, and I, I just sort of aced those courses and couldn't pay attention to calculus. So although calculus is not very important. <laughs> so the um, so anyhow, so I, I drifted into politics and um, both in my life as a political activist and my life as a, a political science student um, ended up getting into political behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is, you know, just the political version of uh, behavioral economics. <laughs> and um, it was uh, just something that came natural to me. I had a good read of it. I really enjoyed doing it. Um, I, I spent, you know, the 80s doing politics and got a lucky break and became principal secretary to Gary Philman in the province of Manitoba in a minority government during Meech Lake. Mm-hmm. And that just opened a whole bunch of doors to me. You know, I was... Um, hanging out with Wendy Mesley and Alan Gregg and Angus mm-hmm. Reed and, you know, all these people at 25 years old. So, um, and out of that, I ended up um, getting into the, a combination of, of both uh, public affairs and, and um, public relations and research. I, I was, uh, Alan Gregg recruited me to be someone that could navigate people through the warn of the WPP companies. Do you need advertising? Do you need GR? Do you need PR? Do you need polling? Where right. the anchor of this was the polling. Yeah. Um, so to cut a long story short, I, I spent about a decade at that intersection and then um, wanted to really sink my teeth into one aspect of that and created Innovative as a way to focus just on the research side of it. So you know, long story short, I essentially started as a client Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, ended up doing the work because it was really interesting. A lot of things were on the move, and um, I thought uh, we could offer something a little bit different. Yeah. So a, a lot of things on the move. What about what about today in this election campaign? Our uh, well, decarbonization and 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 energy and electricity. I don't see them as being issues up until now. Uh, will they, and uh, or or will they be eclipsed? And if so, what are they going to be eclipsed by? Well, I think what you're seeing is that by and large, is a consensus now um, that you know Canada's future has to be a greener future, and everyone's buying into that, mm-hmm. and everyone has a plan on that. The issue is, will there be a focus drawn to the difference in the party's position on how to do that? Mm-hmm. Right. So both the Tories and the Liberals agree that Canadians should pay something in carbon pricing, mm-hmm. um, whatever they call it. But the the Tory plan will raise the pricing that average people pay a lot less than the Liberals. Okay. Right. So by by 20. Well, within eight, uh, nine years, by 2030, okay. uh, the Liberal plan will increase carbon pricing uh, six times. Right, mm-hmm. it'll go from thirty bucks to one hundred and seventy bucks, mm-hmm. um, and in places like BC and Ontario, which are filled with swing seats uh, in suburbs, all those people have got their natural gas bills, and on those natural gas bills is a line showing the carbon charge. And as a Tory candidate, all you sort of need to do is walk around the neighborhood with your bill and say, "Look at that number on your bills. Times it by six. How do you like the Liberals now?" Mm-hmm. Right? And then you can use that to open the discussion about what's happening with inflation and what that's going to do to your mortgage, mm. right? And they can sit down and say, here's my mortgage. This is how much I'm paying in interest. I'm paying two and a half percent and it costs, you know, 2,500 a month. And uh, assuming you're in a nice neighborhood like Oakville or, um, you know, Vancouver South, 
Um, now imagine what happens if interest rates go up by a point. It's going to almost double the interest payment, right? So that means at least another thousand dollars on your mortgage every month, mm -hmm. right? I mean, if you didn't like what was happening to the garbage carbon charge, what do you like? What do you think? How do you think you're going to like paying more in terms of your mortgage? That gets into now. I'm a bit scared of the liberals, mm -hmm. right? Right now, the liberals are are sort of there's not that much time for a change, although it's been growing. It has been increasing over the past couple of waves, but it's still lower than it was in 2019. Okay. Um, if, uh, you know, and on the, the, the NDP side, you know, I still think one of the best lines is if you're for, uh, if you want to fight climate change, why are you building a pipeline? Mm -hmm. Right. Like for, if you're on that sort of core, green advocacy attitudinal, attitudinal segment, right. um, seeing that sort of, it just doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. Even if you agree there needs to be a transition and all the rest of that, building a new pipeline just doesn't make sense if you're really against climate change. Um, I think one of the things I haven't really seen the Liberals get hit hard on yet, but seems to me to be the sort of things that, that could really hurt, is if you think about um, the discovery of um, the indigenous children's graves, the unmarked. Right. Yeah. Um, five years ago, the government was asked to spend a million dollars to find those graves and yep. roof, right? Had not funded that work for five years, even though they said they were supportive of the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Hmm. But that report came in at the start of this government, and they have not done anything to act on that. No one's really held them up on that, but it's another one of those examples where you could say, they talk the talk, but do they walk the walk? Mm. You know, my sort of experience is if you can get the average swing voter to have a, you know, one, two, three uh, reasons to say these people are hypocrites, that's about all you need. Mm. Um, and I think the combination of the pipeline and the failure to fund the search for the graves gives the parties on the left two out of three. Right. Yeah. So I think the, the liberals, even though they have a lot of you know, a lot of strong underlying numbers have some vulnerabilities on both the right flank and their left flank. Um, and that I think that's one of the reasons why you see such a quick election, right? Because mm -hmm. uh, just weeks ago, the chief electoral officer was talking about his desire to see a longer than average rip period so that mm -hmm. he could spread out the voting mm -hmm. um, and try and have as few people's possible vote on, on voting day given the rise of the Delta variant and the, the potential risk of having a lot of people in one place. Mm -hmm. um, so yet the government didn't, didn't accept that advice and went for the short campaign because they're trying to give the opposition as little time as possible to rock the boat. In your description of uh, the conversation that would take potentially take place over the, uh, you know, the carbon tax on on somebody's natural gas bill that that sounds like the ground game that somebody would be playing right. but not necessarily the the big picture is it more likely that those decarbonization electrification issues well well not uh, big kind of air war issues but might, might form more of a ground game in this campaign i think it still uh has the potential to be an air war issue okay right? so the having the the candidate meet a you know, suburban family, you know, get them to pull out their bills and just sort of go through the math mm -hmm. um, is something that makes some sense. Um, and it could be a strong, um, a strong contrast to that, right? Yeah. Like you can imagine an ad from um, that says, you know, what's going to happen to your gas bill, right? What's going to happen to your, your car fuel bill and what's going to happen to your mortgage as a result of the out of control spending. Right. Um, and you sort of put those things together and you have, you know, a reason to be worried. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, first and foremost, because the liberals started out ahead, the job of the opposition is to strip people away from the liberals. And you don't do that by talking just about your own plan. You have to mm -hmm. explain what's wrong with the other guys and mm -hmm. then how you're going to fix it. Um, so that means that um, it could be a fairly negative campaign. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's talk a little bit about polling generally. Um, you know, we, we often hear the term that uh, you know a public opinion poll gives you a snapshot in, in time. So why is it important to grab those snapshots in time and 
And to what degree do politicians actually use those snapshots to try and, and shape and, and change public opinion? Well, I think politicians use them in different ways. Um, you know, what a, what a poll can do is show you what's possible, mm. uh, where things stand and where things could be, but they don't, they're not crystal balls. And one of the things that people regularly do wrong in polls that are trying to look at a, a, de a debate, whether it's who should form the government or who supports a policy, mm -hmm. is that they, they test their arguments and they don't test their opponent's arguments. Ah, and, okay. and, and essentially what you've got is it's like um, looking at how, one, how well a soldier shoots on a shooting range and then assuming they're going to shoot that well when someone's shooting back. Yeah, they don't, yeah. right? Yeah. The shooting range is, is artificial. And if you only test one side of an argument, you don't know what happens in a fair fight. Hmm. And so um, typically back when, when we met, we were doing a lot of work on uh, power lines at the time. Yep. where the And also for, uh, because Ontario was in the middle of a, uh, a big supply generation build at that time, mm -hmm. also on siting things like wind turbines and solar farms and natural gas plants. And so what we would typically do is, is a third of the survey would get positive arguments, a third would get negative arguments, and a third would get both. And we basically find out what would happen if you try and low bridge things, keep a low mm -hmm. profile, mm -hmm. and your opponents show up and get in there first. What happens if you go first? And what happens if it's a fair fight? And it's a, just the a basic due diligence, yeah. uh, right? So we did work actually for both um, the proponent and the um uh, the ISO on um, the um, the plant, the uh, Oakville power plant. Right. And it, and it was clear from the beginning that that plant was going to have huge problems. Mm -hmm. But at the time, the premier had basically said, we're not going to let NIMBY get in the way of doing the right thing. Mm. Right. And it's all well and good for somebody to say that. It's another thing to live it. And of course, they folded. Um, and that power plant got moved at a significant cost to ratepayers. Right. And, um, you know, that's that's a big thing when you think about polling that um, it, and this was this was actually my inspiration for deciding to focus on this, because there was something called the new look in public opinion that came up in the late 90s. And essentially it said uh, opinion is dynamic. Hmm. And so there's a sort of assumption that if you go into a poll, you find out public opinion and, and that is public opinion. It's a static, firm thing. Mm -hmm. And and that's just not the way it is. And we talked before about the number of people that are paying attention. Yeah. Um, and if you think about that as sort of high water and low water, at the start of a campaign, the water's low. And in that case, even though there are anchors that hold us in place, the anchor lines are very loose. Mm -hmm. And you moves all over the place mm -hmm. when you have uh, a time where the water levels are low. As the water levels get higher, then those anchors firm up. Um, but a big question is what anchors will matter because there's a variety of anchors that can hold our opinions in place. Mm. And that's when we look at, at what people will call framing. Mm -hmm. right? What sort of, is this an election about uh, being a kinder and gentler uh, country or is this an election about um, leaving more money in your pocket? Right. And, you know, that type of framing makes a big difference to who people are going to vote for. And it also makes a big difference to, you know, whether you support a policy. So if there's a key debate on um, uh, carbon pricing mm -hmm. and it happens in the midst of a recession when people are concerned about their money, support for carbon pricing is not going to be very strong. Mm -hmm. That debate happens in the middle of a summer where there's firestorms and droughts and things like that. There's going to be a lot more support. And again, that's probably one of the reasons why you saw the liberals call the election when they did, mm. uh, because it, it makes uh, climate a more salient issue when literally towns are burning to the ground as a result of heat waves, unprecedented heat waves. Yeah. So, so how is um, the, the, the public's attitude towards climate change changing? How, and, and how have those attitudes changed uh, amongst Canadians over the last you know, five, ten years? As as things have heated up, has, has that been literally uh, heated up? Literally, literally heated up, heating up. Um, uh, is there more salience uh, of, uh, of those issues in the public consciousness, or or because so far we're not seeing it in the campaign, but maybe it's because it's the summer. Yeah, well, and it, well, but it's it's not a bad time to talk about this, and the liberals have talked about it to a okay. degree. Yeah. Um, the um, 
But the, the issue on climate change, I mean, we've never seen more people agree that climate change is real and it's happening now. Okay. Um, so there's there's more into more buy into that than we've ever seen. And we're seeing strong buy into the liberal policy of, of carbon pricing, having a carbon pricing floor across the country mm-hmm. than we've seen up until now on a standalone basis. Uh, but again, when we do push come to shove and we basically say it's a, a great way to lead versus it's an empty gesture because the rest of the world isn't following um, the um, it's a very close fight when you get to that level. Um, And again, when you think about issue hierarchy, um, we've been tracking as part of our COVID uh, tracking um, the underlying issues, not COVID per se, but health and jobs, Mm -hmm. uh, education, um, environment, et cetera. And what we've seen is that environment has been a second tier issue. Health and affordability have been the top tier issues. And one of the things that and we actually saw last week from the Liberals as the Liberals came out with a $9 billion plan on long-term care. Mm-hmm. Um, that sounds like a lot of money, but the Ontario Auditor General came out and said to do what we need to do in Ontario, just Ontario, 38% of the country is $12 billion. Ah, okay. um, so presumably the price to do what needs to be done in long-term care across the country is somewhere over $20 billion. Right. Um, and then there's a the question of, well, is that a 20 billion in total or 20 billion every year? Mm-hmm. And is it 9 billion, 9 billion in total or 9 billion every year? So, I mean, there's a lot of math to be done there, but the um, one of the things that, that you have to ask yourself is why are the parties still focused on things like dental plans and pharmacy plans when, you know, we just saw, you know, well over 10,000 people die in long-term care facilities where they were put four to a room, where uh, they didn't have the staffing they needed. People died of dehydration, right? Um, Not from COVID, from dehydration. Hundreds, if not thousands of people um, lying in their own ways. It's just an appalling thing. And I'm shocked, actually, that it's not a front and center issue in this campaign far more than we've seen. Um, Because it's just devastating that that can happen in a country like Canada. So why why isn't it a top tier issue? Is it? I, I guess I guess I, I'm I'm trying to go to the heart heart of the issue is is who determines what the the the, the ballot box questions are going to be. Uh, it sounds as though I mean that's an issue that everybody has heard about. Everybody should be concerned about, but politicians are not necessarily talking about it. Is that- well, it's a, it's a three legged stool, right? So there's three players in the mix. Um, I would like to argue that the most important leg is the audience, us, as we okay. listen to campaigns and we we seek information and and you know we we both seek it from the campaigns, but we also seek it from the media. Yeah. So the media is this and a really important second store, right? They have a gatekeeper role. They decide okay. what yeah. stories are going to run with and what priority they give to it. And then the third is the parties themselves, because the parties more than ever now have their own direct lines of communications with the public. Mm-hmm. And so if they think there's something that's gonna drive response, um, then they can double down on that. And what every party's doing right now is A-B testing, right? So they're putting out alternative messages on their social media and seeing what ones get clicked on. Okay, can you maybe just, so A-B testing is you're, you're, you're testing at the same time, alternate right. versions of the same message or? Well, or alternate messages, right? Okay. So you're trying to get a sense of, you know, through various targeting tools, you identify a target population on social media, right? Okay. Which is quite easy to do on Facebook and Google. And then you you have an idea that you could talk about an issue this way, or you could talk about it that way. You could talk about this issue, or you could talk about that issue. And so you put them head to head and you see which one gets more clicks, hmm. which one engages your audience. Um, and then you run with the one that is engaging people hmm. and, um, media does the same thing, right? The oh, media, okay. it's not, they don't do AB testing per se, but they're watching what people click on their online, um, the, the online articles. So that the news that we're watching is, is being driven by what's getting eyeballs and what's getting clicks. Exactly. And so to that degree, the audience actually plays a pretty, pretty big role, right? We think of, of. You know, often you hear this narrative of, you know, that the public's being manipulated. 
but at the end of the day, the public chooses to attend or not to attend. Mm-hmm. And the, the parties in the media are very responsive to what we watch, right? Because the media are selling uh, ads and mm-hmm. those ads are based on how many clicks they get. That generates revenue for them and, and they're all struggling. So that's a big thing. And, and the, the parties are looking for votes. And if something doesn't uh, interest voters, they're not going to pursue it. So the public's being manipulated, but it's being manipulated in the direction that it is essentially indicating that it wants to be uh, led. Sure. Yeah. Now, you know, there's challenges in terms of the quality of the information. But again, um, right, so we all know the fake news things and mm-hmm. that people pick their 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 clips. Um, but again, the, the media plays a bit of a gatekeeper role there in the sense of, you know, if they see something that they think isn't true, they can flag it. And in this country, that still matters. And it's arguable whether that matters anymore in the United States. Yeah. And it, and, and it probably matters less now in Canada than it used to. Yeah. Let, let me shift gears then just, just uh, for, for a bit and talk a little <coughs> bit about, about my, my members at, at CEA and the, and the electricity sector. What is it that Canadians expect from uh, the, the electricity sector? What are the, what are the sort of the, the, the main expectations of the sector and the main, I guess, the main attributes that they want to see? Well, there's a tension between utilities and their customers because customers really don't want to think about utilities at all. Uh-huh. Um, but they're a lot more likely to support utilities doing the things they need to do to meet their needs, whether that's building things or raising rates or whatever, mm-hmm. if they know something about utilities. And so there's a tension there, right? I mean, we're busy people. We have lots to do. I just want the switch to go on. When I, when I hit the switch, I want the lights to go on. Yeah. When I open the bill, I don't want a heart attack. And if I can have both those things, then I'm generally going to be pretty happy. Um, the, the big vulnerability that uh, utilities have is with economically vulnerable customers, both at the residential level and the business level. Mm-hmm. Um, but to my mind, the, the answer to those is in policy, not in rates. Um, so what you, what you want to do is you want to cushion the vulnerable from the impacts of rates without having to give up the revenue the rates will give you from the people that can afford to pay more, mm-hmm. right? So if I have two sandwich shops side by side, right, they both have big electricity bills for their air conditioning, whatever, they're not losing business as a result of that, mm-hmm. right? There may be at, at some point, maybe few people, fewer people buy sandwiches, but they both have the same costs. And so it doesn't change the competitive situation. But if I have um, uh, a metal fabrication plant mm-hmm. in St. Catharines, right, across from Buffalo, and my electricity goes up, up, but my Buffalo competitor's electricity does not go up, now I have a competition issue, mm. right? And so, um, and the, the same thing, you know, if I'm living on $1,100 a month, Right. And five hundred dollars goes to my rent, which would be pretty amazing. That's very cheap for rent. <laughs> and I'm living on one hundred and fifty dollars a week. Yeah. Right. Uh, after my rent and my electricity bill goes up 50 bucks. Like, you know, that impacts me in a very significant way. Right. Um, and so we have programs that don't get fully taken up that help those yeah. people. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, you know, that is, is really critical to this whole exercise. We also have an issue where um, social goods that in other jurisdictions will be picked up by taxes mm-hmm. end up getting paid by rates in Canada. Um, right. So things like, well, if you're going to replace fossil fuels with electricity, um, does the electricity system pay the full cost of the increase in capacity to do that? Right. Um, and we all know that, you know, we're, when you look at, at building out the grid or building out generation, those incremental costs usually raise the average cost. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a social good being generated. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, Ontario is a really good example, right? Um, we, um, we built twice the capacity we needed because we wanted to bring green generation in, but we needed peaker plants to cover them. Mm-hmm. And no one ever told the public we were doing that. Right? But the bottom line is that rates had to pay for both types of generation to meet the capacity that the coal plants were providing. Uh-huh. Um, and so, you know, and we, we just weren't honest. 
Um, now, when I say we weren't honest, it wasn't it wasn't the sector. Um, and uh, but nonetheless, uh, the sector paid a price for that because when people saw what the total cost ended up being, right, there was practically a revolution. Mm-hmm. And it's arguable that electricity, as electricity, not as affordability or whatever, but as electricity itself, was the decisive factor that resulted in the defeat of Kathleen. So uh, something that is a, a public good, um, I, I guess the, the distinction there would be, you could, you could make the argument that the distinction would be something that's a public good is something that should be borne by the taxpayer uh, as opposed to the rate payer. Sure, California used tax dollars to green their grid, not just rate dollars. Right, because it wasn't, take- it wasn't just about the grid. It was about uh, air quality. It was about the environment. Mm-hmm. It was all of the other the, the, the other uh, benefits to society at large. Right. So, and, and that's because at the end of the day, what gets the industry into trouble, mostly, not entirely, but mostly is rates. Mm-hmm. Um, we also get reliability issues, right? So... Um, Within your members, we saw this most clearly with Nova Scotia a decade ago. Nova Scotia got hit with three big hurricanes in a row. Yes. And the system at the time was relatively fragile because uh, the government, the the regulator, and the utility all all had basically agreed uh, that we need to keep rates low for the foreseeable future. So we're going to postpone some of uh, the, the, the money that we might have spent on capital. Right. And just a reminder, we're talking a decade ago. Yeah. A decade ago. Yeah. Not yeah, that, Hurricane, Hurricane Juan and then White Juan and yeah. then all of those. Yes. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, and you saw a similar situation um, that actually probably led to the defeat of the government in Newfoundland, where they had, um, I believe, four separate device failures over 10 days in an ice storm in the middle of winter. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, very perilous situations for people depending on electricity because they were literally doing without it in a terribly cold period of time. Um, and that resulted in them building a peaker plant that arguably they were a year away from not needing. Mm. Um, so the, you know, we see these things pop up. Um, you can't, you know, you never know when reliability is gonna, gonna bite you, uh, if you if you put it off. The, the impending threat that we have that has not yet been a, a major issue for a utility is uh, cybersecurity. Okay. Right. So what happens when we get a major breach that either does like what we saw with the colonial pipeline and the state actually shut down the pipeline mm-hmm. uh, and similarly potentially shut down the electricity grid or see a breach in terms of customer data. Right. Um, and different data has different sensitivity. So having a breach on usage data would be different than having a breach on billing data. Yes. Absolutely, yeah. But either type could be a problem for us. So we know there's those things out there um, that the the sector's done a great job. It's, you know, they've secured the data, protected the data. No one's successfully been able to breach it. Um, But we know it's a growing threat. Right. And this presumably this is this is a this is an issue that's got to be way back of mind for the for the customer. But based upon research that you've done over the years, if things go badly, um, I, I guess there's, there's probably a couple of third rails for this sector. Yes. Um, rates and, and, and reliability being the two, those are the two things that absolutely have to be delivered at all times. Exactly. And then, you know, what we're seeing is in the increasing role in terms of environment, mm-hmm. right? So yep. in Ontario, it was critical because of the issue with the airshed and the smog days and all the rest of that. Um, beyond carbon, right, even though there was clearly a big benefit in terms of carbon, the issue that really caught the public's eyes was children's asthma. Mm-hmm. And if, if you look at what's going on in terms of um, Alberta and Saskatchewan, their airsheds aren't like that. Yeah, They don't have that that critical issue. So health has been much less of an issue. Hmm. The issue with fossil fuels is much more an issue of carbon. And it's been, it took longer to build a consensus that something should be done about that. Yeah. Hey, one of the things that that I've been talking about when talking about, you know, the world of net zero 2050 um, is 
these projections of uh, electricity demand and, and, and what's going to happen between now and 2050. Some right. say that we're looking at a doubling to tripling of, of, of the need for non-emitting electricity. Um, as we look to, to that future that is going to be much more electric, what advice would you give to industry leaders uh, to prepare for that future when thinking about you know, how to make sure we bring the customer along? Well, I think that there's two sides to that, right? I mean, there's there's the general move to more more electricity, which I don't think is a slam dunk because of the cost factor. So even though there's a growing consensus we should set these goals, we've never met any of the goals that we've set in the past. And I don't know why we think now government's going to magically meet its goals. Um, and we know what the big hurdle is, which is that... Um, Grid electricity is is relatively expensive as as we add to it. So um, you know, to a degree, um, we sort of look a bit like the phone system looked like thirty years ago, mm. right? There's a new technology coming up that allows people to not use a line, right? To be line free, mm -hmm. um, and as we see things like um, hydrogen fuel cells, rooftop solar. Uh, Tesla power walls. Um, the question is, um, is grid electricity going to be part of electrification? So I think the, the big issue for the utilities right now is twofold. Number one, to be a leader, right? Um, and in part, that's going to create the challenge of how do you make things like electric vehicle, both load and supply, dispatchable? Mm -hmm. Right. What deals are we going to give consumers? Um, so that uh, the consumers agree to allow the timing of the when their their cars get charged up to be controlled by the control room and not mm -hmm. be controlled by consumers. Because mm -hmm. if consumers do it, what we're going to be doing is is expanding our critical peaks. Yes, absolutely. Right? They're going to they're yeah. going to plug in at five o'clock in the afternoon. The way when everybody gets home. Yep. Right. And so what are we going to have to do? We're going to have to build more power lines. We're going to have to build more generating stations. We're going to have to charge people more mm -hmm. and we're going to have that capacity be useless for 90% of the year. Yeah. Um, so it's going to be very expensive because we have to pay for it on a very limited number of hours. Mm -hmm. um, so, but if we make it dispatchable, right, we can use the exact, the grid we have today and the power that we have today in terms of peak load, mm -hmm. um, to meet that need and get people literally plugged into the grid. Yeah. So um, I think that's, you know, it's, it's not a slam dunk to do that. I think it, it's pretty critical that, that we get in front of that. I think the other thing is that you need to be ready for technology to blindside you. Every one of our utilities has an asset that doesn't show up on a balance sheet and that's its relationship with its customers. Mm -hmm. Right. And we know that people don't blink when someone comes in with, um, you know, electricity company ID and says, I need to look at something in your house. They get mm -hmm. to get it right. People mm -hmm. trust. Uh, they don't do that for a lot of other things. And so I think the that consumer trust that utilities have creates an opportunity for them to do what companies like Bell and Telus did, which is recognizing that technology was going to. Uh, reduce the demand for their wired product, become leading uh, competitors uh, for the wireless. Mm. And so I think there's a, a big opportunity for utilities uh, to be able to continue to deliver uh, rewards to their shareholders um, while, uh, while not being tied to their lines, mm -hmm. right? Because if technology does shift in a way where lines are less and less important or only important for certain purposes, um, you don't want to go down with the ship. You want to be able to survive for another day. Yeah. Hey, Greg, I mean, we could talk for hours. We, we, we have in the past, um, but uh, maybe in the interest of time, let me give you just one last question. It's something I ask everybody that comes onto the podcast. The, the, the listener can't see you, but we're, we're on Zoom and I can see you're standing or sitting in front of a, a bookshelf there. I always ask people about a book, either a book that they're reading or a book that they've recently read that they would recommend uh, to the listener. So for, for you, Greg, what would be the book that you would recommend to, uh, to the listener? Well, I'll give you two because it'll depend on the interests of, of the viewer. So the Perfect. one book that, that is ideal to read right now 
is a book called Let the People Decide, written by someone named Richard Johnson. And it's a book about the 1988 election campaign, but it's a, it's, and it is about the events, but it's also about how does opinion move and change? Um, now, the issue with it is that it is um, an academic book. It's pretty well written for an academic book, but it doesn't compromise on its language. Um, so I, it's definitely something I would look in in a store before I bought it or, or you know, but it's, it's um, you know, I first read it when I uh, did not know many of the things I know today. And it was a great, it was just, it opened my eyes to the, the, the reality of opinion as something dynamic, but that moves in predictable ways. So I think that's a great book, and it, and given we're in the middle of an election, it'll help you understand the election a lot better. And it's the, that's the 1988 U.S. election campaign? No, 1988 Canadian Canadian election, election campaign. Okay, gotcha. And it, it actually was the first time any academic anywhere in the world used nightly tracking to track the election campaign. Oh, interesting. It, it, it's actually, you know, it's a, it's a must-read book in political science, but it's also a really interesting ex, uh, way to see mm-hmm. how opinions move and change in reaction to the events and the um, the tactics yep. used in that campaign. Um, so then the other book I'd encourage you to think about is Reese, uh, two guys named Reese and Trout wrote a book called Positioning. And uh, they wrote that back in the early 80s. And it was about, you know, the power of brands, essentially. Um, but they updated it. There's a version of it. Um, that came out in the early 2000s, I think, <clears throat> that brought in a bunch of really important advances in uh, social psychology. Hmm. And, and basically what they did is that on one side of the book is their original write-up, which is very plain language. Um, of, it was just a short, tight book. But then on the other side, they share what we now know about the psychology of how opinions form and change. And it's an interesting mix between uh, behavioral economics and social psychology. Um, so again, that's another really, really good book that um, helps you understand how people uh, form and change uh, their opinions. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's written from a marketing perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that can be very useful to a lot of your members. All right. So we've got Positioning by Recent Trout, the updated edition, and uh, Let the People Decide. Uh, about the 1988 election campaign. Exactly. Awesome. Hey, Greg, thank you very much. I really appreciate uh, you taking the time to jump on the podcast. And it was also great to catch up. Absolutely. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Flux Capacitor. Tune in for future podcasts in this series, which will include industry, government, and stakeholder guests further discussing the implications of and the pathways to the net zero future. Tanya Leach of Quest will join the conversation on the next podcast. And as always, let's continue the electricity conversation on our Facebook page, on Twitter, and at electricity.ca.